Welcome to part two of the Gospel According to Warren Moon. In part one, Warren shared his journey as a professional footballer, how his career was cut short due to a serious injury, and then his return to Australia at East Football Club, where he started the next chapter of his footballing journey. While coaching at Easts, Warren took on a football director role at the Anglican Church Grammar School. This exposed him to the world of greater public schools, their passion, their history, culture, and rivalry, but more importantly, their desire to develop young athletes into greater people. The GPS system has a membership of nine schools, all who are extremely competitive. Ipswich Grammar School, Brisbane Grammar School, St. Joseph's Gregory Terrace, Toowoomba Grammar School, St. Joseph's Nudgee College, the Southport School, Brisbane Boys College, Anglican Church Grammar School, and Brisbane State High. As someone who had very little to do with the GPS system, I was fascinated by how much those in the system embraced it and cherished it. I'm really interested to know how you transitioned into school football or school development. Once I came back and started to get involved in local football and took the job at East, actually, Eastern Suburbs happened to be right next door to a school called Anglican Church Grammar School, literally right next door. They backed onto each other. As I did, I had to find work and employment and coaching, not just at East, but then going out and coaching in the community or, or starting my own coaching business back then, which is a quite a popular thing to do right now. Some of the contracts I had, one was at Churchy, Anglican Church Grammar School. So I was doing coaching for them, a couple of holiday clinics, some in-school staff, things like that. Eventually that sort of morphed into doing a bit more at the school to the point where, and I wasn't aware at the time, but they had full-time roles in, in rugby union being a huge sport in the school and cricket for someone that ran the football program exclusively, not the teacher, but someone in that role. And they were looking at pointing someone for football as well. So it just so happened I was doing contract work for them and I was very lucky to be offered the role. And I went from doing a lot of coaching to then exclusively working for Anglican Church Grammar School and running their football program. And what ages were you dealing with? All the way down from prep, which is five and six years age, all the way up to 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. What did you learn about young players, youth development and the transition through those ages? Lots. I mean, it's hard to, to put into words what exactly. It's such a, a, a moving beast, you know, from, from the type of players you deal with to the type of person, the personality, how to develop, what kind of development are you looking to do. Projections, a big one. Profiling. Working in the school, it's different to club football because you've got to work with the kids that go to your school. From a perspective of results and, and working on like trying to do well in the GPS, which is a highly intense competition, which for anyone that's seen the GPS match day Saturday, it's uh, pretty full on. But you don't just bring in the best kids, you, you sort of have to project. So that might be you're looking at kids as, as young as grade four and grade five and saying, well, when they hit grade seven and eight and you combine them with a year above, that could be your window to try and achieve something in terms of winning a GPS, there was a lot of long-term projection, a lot of long-term planning, and then a lot of development below that is a case of, well, 
you're not just developing to make a socceroo, you're developing to make a first 11 player for your school. And it may be, it, it, it may be that you're taking or converting a rugby player or a rowing player and trying to give them some basic developmental skills to compete at the level just to make sure our worst player isn't too far disconnected from what our best players are to try and give us a chance to be competitive. That was really interesting, really interesting experience because it wasn't just dealing with elite football players. I can understand looking at a year 10 player and projecting that they could be in the first 11 side, but a year four player, there'd have to be a fair amount of guesswork as well. It's guesswork for sure, but you're looking for basic skills. And I said this at the start, no one knows about if a player is going to make it or whatnot. But what you can do, you can start to just identify players that have, one, if they have a love of the game, or two, if they have a little bit of skill. Because ultimately, in that environment, you know that you need to rely on the ones that aren't going to play for Australia or they're not going to play at the or, or, or play at a decent level in their state. You're relying on the kid that you can put as much development into between the ages of maybe year four, five, or six, and then get as much into them by the time they hit grade 10, 11, or even grade 12 because they're the ones you're going to rely on because you can't just put a team of superstars out. You've got to work with what you've got in the school. How competitive is the sporting program for those schools? Massive, massive. I think the level, and you've got to look at the level because people say it's schoolboy football, but these private schools, they're rich private schools, who they have more resources than some of those clubs I was talking about when I went and played professionally in the UK. I look at the school I was at, they have a state-of-the-art gym that when the All Blacks come to town, they train there. They have high-performance staff that are full-time. They've, they've got all the resources to try and do their best and perform the best on a Saturday in all the sports. Rugby is big, but soccer's obviously or football is huge as well. A match day Saturday is a huge, huge thing. And if you're lucky enough to be picked in the first 11 of your GPS school, you don't just carry the weight of expectation on your own shoulders, you carry it on the school. And, and a lot of the kids talk about that and they feel that. You're talking about playing in front of a 1,000 people. You get more kids to a GPS game than you would to any state league men's game. And the atmosphere is electric and it's intimidating. And the amount of times I watch these players, you know, we've got players in our program here right now that you put them in a, a Brisbane Roar under-20s game on the weekend, they're fine, they'll go produce, they'll go play the 90 minutes, no problem. But you put them in 80 minutes because it's less than GPS of a high-intense GPS game on a Saturday with the build-up, the expectation, the pressure, the amount of players that break down and cramp because they're just physically and emotionally spent before the game's done, it was staggering. They would physically give everything and it might still not, might not be enough because they just put so much into it and there's so much expectation from them and put on them by them and the school in regards to trying to beat a rival. Everyone's rivals. Everyone hates everyone. That's, that, that's always the build-up. But it's unique. I've never seen anything like it. The day before, I was at the Nudgee School Assembly where the school captain welcomed new students as men of Nudgee. It was clear to me that the term men of Nudgee had a greater significance than mere words. So I went and saw Nudgee's principal to get a better understanding of the phrase and of the GPS system. What does it mean when you refer to men of Nudgee? Uh, that's a phrase we use quite commonly here at Nudgee. And in referring to that men of Nudgee, it's an inclusive term. It doesn't just refer to those boys who perhaps at 17 or 18, we talk to even our youngest boys at 10 or 11, we're appealing to the very best sense of themselves in that sense of being a young man, taking that responsibility, doing the best he can, being the best that he can possibly be in himself 
whatever his abilities, and we also talk about our limitations as well. So it's an aspirational title. I think it's an inspirational title. It's one I think we're trying to draw on a sense in young men and in boys. I guess they are always looking to the adult figure, looking to their fathers, looking for those male mentors in their lives, I think, to draw the very best out of them by using that metaphor. When you're dealing with young children coming into your system or coming into the school, what is your aspirational goal from when you receive them as young men? Sure. Stuart, I guess one of those things we talk about oftentimes to parents as they come into the school and boys are coming in, they're 10 years of age. Most commonly, they're coming in in year year seven. They can also be 12 or 13. So oftentimes, that notion of the boy arriving and then ultimately, if he's here for five years, three years, whatever that journey may be, that when he exits year 12, it's that young man of nudgy. It's that journey. And even our school captain talked yesterday around that journey of transformation. And that transformation is not only a physical thing on the outside, there's also the transformation that happens internally, socially, emotionally in our boys as they develop into the young men of Nudgy. A lot of young kids and parents are scared to even contemplate sending their child to a GPS school and send them off to boarding school. How could you allay their fears? I think one of the big things, and that's a very understandable sentiment for parents about how they may feel of of letting their sons go, if that's the right expression, even for the boys to come themselves. But invariably, when I talk to parents about their boys coming to Nudgy, It's always about the opportunity that that presents. There's a sacrifice for parents to let their sons go, but they do that in the sense of there's a bigger opportunity through Nudgy, through their classwork and things that happen within the school, but also that whole co-curricular program we've referred to being part of the GPS, which I think is a competition for a range of boys. And I think here at Nudgy we do two things. There's mass participation for many boys in many sports, but there's also a high performance element to those things that we do in a school context that the boys get that opportunity to compete oftentimes against the very best boys, the very best young men across the state in the schools in a competition which is well contested and and a great rivalry and with a great history where boys are well supported through training programs, but also well supported by their mates on the sideline as well. And that rivalry is great. Right. It's a fantastic thing. I think it's just a couple of years ago that was the centenary of the GPS, 1918 through to 2018. And the tagline that went with that centenary was the spirit of fellowship. And I think sometimes we do get caught up on the winning and losing and who's uh, having the better day of a Saturday. But sometimes I think it's important to remind ourselves that the shared history that these schools have over 100 years of spirited competition, and while they do compete of a weekend against each other, um, and fiercely so on, on, on occasions, it's also true that, that when they finish grade 12, they go to university together. They end up in occupations together. They end up in, in, in situations which bring them together, and they have a great shared history that whether they're a nudgy boy, a BBC boy, a, 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 a churchy boy, that they, they reminisce about their competitions against other young men on the field in, during their days at a GPS school. How do you, as a mentor and a coach, mentally prepare a child to deal with that sort of pressure? It's tough. As a coach, the hard part as well is that from if you if you go purely from a football perspective, and I learned this as I went in to my, my role, and probably by years three, four, and five, I got better at it. But you wanted to come at everything from a purely football perspective. So when the player's not good enough to play for the first eleven, you just tell them, you cut them, and you say, "Better luck next year." But you're crushing someone's whole hopes, dreams, and ambitions to represent the school because that school spirit, that camaraderie that, that gets built up 
over many, many years means so much to that person. And the build up to put on that jersey for that school, it's a big thing for them. I never forget there was one kid that he was never going to play for Australia or at any level. He wasn't even that great, but he every year turned up to trials on grade five, six, seven for the A teams, never made it. When he was eligible to trial for the first 11, he was there, didn't make it. In grade 11, I cut him again and he was crushed and couldn't accept the decision and he didn't say that the best things, which is okay. We dealt with that when it happened. And then he came in grade 12 with a positive attitude, worked hard. It wasn't the best side, I'll admit, I had, but I picked him and I got more out of that kid in that year than I did from most. And he absolutely gave everything. And I mean everything. And in the last game of the season, our grade 12 boy, so finishing up, knows he was playing his last game. I subbed him. We were winning the game. He'd scored two goals. I subbed him. And as he came off, he broke into tears. Still to this day, it gets me because I finally got it then, what it means to play for the school and, and this, because it means far more than, 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 than representing your club, playing for your school, building that camaraderie and that love and that tribalism for your school in the gps as well they can't be matched and yeah i'll never forget he broke down in tears that day and he had to be consoled and it's something that sticks with me because as a coach i probably wasn't so aware about the decisions i made especially in the school environment because it, it for me as a footballer it's all very black and white you're good enough or you're not you've got to work with those decisions as a coach it's the hardest part of being a coach but when you go into a school environment like that, you had to look at it differently and you had to be a little bit more sensitive and you had to nurture and you had to you had to see if you could get the best out of a kid. But at the same time, you can't be too harsh in those environments as well. So help me understand the uh, grading system for the first 11. Is it actually an 11-player squad? You do pick about probably about 16, but they can come from – you're eligible to play for the first 11 from grade 9 up. So anything below, you're not allowed to play. So a lot of players in grade nine, physically not ready, but they'll still rock up to, to trial for a first 11 because it's the most prestigious thing in the school. You can play for your first 11 in sport. So you, you could disappoint some kids for four years. So you do pick a squad of 16, but you're talking about a four-year age group. There's no set age group that between grade nine, 10, 11, and 12, you can play for the first 11. So it's a big pool of players. And some players can be four-year first 11 players, or they can be one year. It just depends on how good they are and how physically ready they are. Do they have different gradings if you don't make that first 11? You've got first 11 and then you've got a second 11 or a third 11 or a fourth 11. Everyone gets an opportunity to play for their school and it, whatever level it may be. You, and you go into, say, grade 8, grade 9, grade 10, it's 9A, B, C, as far down to D potentially. You do find that you've got the best young players playing in the AH groups that are involved in MPL clubs or even here play all the way up to the first 11 and then there's a big drop off behind that you know it's very social after that it's about school spirit and rugby players and boarders and rowers that just want to be with their mates on a saturday and they're the ones that play in the b c's and d's and once they're done and they've kicked around with their mates and they go into the stands and then they start the tribalism the cheering the the songs getting ready for the first 11 games and they, they all sort of stay around on mass and, and support the school in terms of the first 11. your experience with GPS players and particularly those first 11, are there some players that could have progressed their sport further that they've not achieved their potential? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, what? it doesn't matter what level you're at, work rate, work ethic, good attitude, that can get you a long way. I'm certain of that. The amount of examples I've seen about people with just good attitudes, ability to, to keep turning up, to keep pushing themselves, to keep sacrificing for the team, 
GPS has shown me more than anything else that just those qualities and those traits can can get you a long way. There are a lot of players in Queensland who are desperate to progress their sport. How real is a scholarship at one of those GPS schools and what would they have to do to achieve that? Scholarships to these schools can open up massive, massive doors for you in the sense that a scholarship to a GPS school can give you a brilliant opportunity at an education that you may not normally get, which is fantastic. But from a football perspective, when you take an opportunity to go here, you understand that you're going into a school environment, but as mentioned before, a professional environment. You've got the resources of a professional football club. You've got the gym, you've got full-time staff, you've got highly accredited coaches, all looking out for your best interests. And from their perspective, there's eight games in a whole year. It's not many, but if they're champions, then for that school, for that year, they get the plaudits and the credit for being champions of the GPS. Doesn't sound that amazing to those outside of that, but it really is a big deal. So what happens around that in the year is a lot. That They look after the athlete, they manage the athlete, they monitor the athlete, they try and make them as fit, as physically strong. They try and balance their club load with their, the school load and they try and produce the best sides they can for that those eight matches. And if you go into that environment, you're basically getting something to what you could probably compare to the AAS back in the old days. The environment or, or the full-time training that you get in those schools is something like equivalent to what you get in a, uh, a full-time AAS program. You've led Churchy to a, a victory, a championship. Yeah. When's that? Just. Just before I took this job, it worked out well. I've been there five years. I've been close a couple of times. But to be honest, we, I spoke about projection and not every school has the luxury of bringing in too many scholarship players. We just said before, it's a fantastic thing if you get that opportunity, but Church is very much an academic school and uh, they do bring in some, but but not too many. And we had our window as such w- was last year. We had prepared a good crop of players that were at the school with a good group that came in, in terms of a couple of scholarship players. And we built a squad knowing that this would be our year and as it turned out, we uh, won seven of the six of the eight matches, drew one, lost one, and that was enough to give us the outright premiership. And what did that mean for you and what did that mean for the school? I think for me it was more relief. You know, I've coached club level and it's very hard, but coaching GPS and trying to win a GPS is, is one of the hardest things I've had to do because every school has a good team. You've got eight matches and, as mentioned before, the emotional drain it takes on the players is you just don't know what you're going to get on each Saturday. I've never, even the year this year, just gone where we won it. I've never gone a whole season where we've played well in every game. You're always going to get a dip with the boys. It's physically so hard to compete every week and be up every week and play well every week that it's just such a hard competition to win. To win it was more relief and just validation that what myself and, and Derek Lennon, who's director of sport there, did over the last five years was was obviously worthwhile in terms of the planning and the preparation we put into it. And how did the school react? I think they're still celebrating. <laughs> and then you've, you've taken on a role. You started in 2019 as the general manager of the Brisbane Raw Academy. Can you talk to me about what you found when you came into the club, what you've had to do to change the culture if you've had to change it at all? Well, I was always going to do it my way and, and we'll continue to do it my way. It was different. To what I expected, I, I found it pretty broken and fractured, if I'm honest. That's no reflection on anyone previous because it was more a case of the people previous had left and it was in a bit of limbo and before decisions were made, the academy was sort of untouched. I think the first thing I did, I had to make sure that we had a home. We were training on an AstroTurf car park with not 
the, the adequate facilities of an academy. So, And I'm reminded that you're not a fan of AstroTurf as far as training every day. You probably understand now why I'm not a big fan of AstroTurf because it's sort of part of the reason with my career knowing that I had a, a fair bit of <laughs> heavy load going through the groins. But, but it's not conducive to a professional environment. Four sessions a week on AstroTurf is not what's required for an academy. So we have home here, our A-League and our W-League are here at Logan. And the big thing for me was to bring us all to one roof, not just because we're on grass pitches, but because it's a home and we should all be one club, one goal, and we should be striving in the same direction together. That was the big one for me. And that was probably the biggest change I made straight up, bring us all under one roof. And I think that's been a massive positive for the club, a positive for the academy that they can look across and see the A-League boys on, on that pitch, knowing that that's where they want to get to one day anyway but also the open spaces where we can do more things with the players, work on more things about how we want to play, how Brisbane Roar wants to play, things that just couldn't be done on, on, on the old training environment. That was probably the big one. Coaching staff, that was massive for me because I need to have coaches around that I believe in that they're the good people as well. And I think I've, I've got a great crop of coaches that have come in, not just fantastic coaches, but great people as well. And they're passionate and they care about Queensland football. And that was most important to me. There's so many highly credentialed coaches that I could look all around the world and, and look to bring in, but that's been tried before. Bringing in a Spanish coach or bringing in someone from overseas is wonderful, but if they don't understand the landscape and understand what we're about here in Queensland, something's going to get lost along the way. And I've made it a point to, to bring in coaches that are passionate about Queensland football and care about Queensland football and want to progress Queensland players. And it's obvious from those who see what's happening with Brisbane Roar Academy that eyes are certainly focused on Queensland, not just Brisbane, but the entire Queensland state. Well, and so it should be. And we and we haven't done a good enough job with the whole state and knowing what's out there. And it's only this the beginning. We need more people in regional areas that we can sort of trust to go in there and, and run good programs. Um, and, and we shouldn't have to ask any kid in the regional area at 13, 14, or even 15 to leave their home to come down to us. If we can work with and, and have good coaches in those regions where they can develop the kid or the player, then they should get to live at home in their environment where they're most comfortable and they can progress and be nurtured and and then get the best out of themselves and not be away from home. And And obviously that's what we want as well. What did you find when you came in and took over and what are you trying to achieve? Well, we want to be professional on and off the field. I'm not saying we're not, we are, but but we need to obviously lift the standard, raise the bar in, in, in how we act as a club and, and understand that being the only A-League club comes with responsibility that how we are perceived a little bit differently, which is okay. We're, we're more than happy with that, but we've got to maintain high standards. I know we will, but that will be driven from the coaches. Bringing in good people again, good coaches, they drive that culture and we've got that in every team. We play a lot of players up in age and that's for their own development, but we need to show a little bit more resilience, a little bit more toughness about us in our academy because the jump is huge when you get from a certain level to, to senior football and then into NPL football and then A-League football. So we want to encourage that toughness. We want to build that resilience in our players and we want to see it from them a little bit more in, in, in training and in games. And We've spoken about that, but I think the key one for me is, and I just said it about my coaches, but we want better people. We want to make good footballers, but we also want to make good people as well. And if we can instill that in them in good attitudes, good behaviours, we think we can get good footballers just by providing that as an environment that they come into on a daily basis. So if a young 12, 13, 14-year-old regional Queensland kid is 
hearing you today and they want to ask one question that is, what do I have to do now to be a Brisbane Roar Academy player into the future? Well, I think you need to work hard. That's one thing. Definitely work hard because everyone needs to work hard. Work hard, you get your rewards. But if you're in regional areas and you've got good coaching, I'd say listen to your coaches. When the time is right and if you are identified and one of those players that wants to play for Brisbane Roar, you'll get your opportunity. Okay, but when you come into our environment, you'll see how we act and how we behave. And if you can act and behave in that way and how we expect, coupled with the fact that you work hard, which is what we expect from all our players, and you have ability, then you're a great chance. When you've invited a player in or you're looking at your own players to assess whether they should stay on for the following season, what are some of the things that you see in them that would dissuade you or, or, or be a negative in their selection? I think, again, it comes back to the attitude of the player. Do they work hard on and off the ball? Are they professional? Are they respectful of their opposition? Are they respectful of their teammates? You know, we don't, we, we, it's a very interesting environment we bring these kids into. We don't expect them to be best friends, but we certainly expect them to uh, respect their teammates and get on and behave in a manner that we, we think is acceptable in, in our environment. That's paramount for me. That's key. That, that needs to be displayed on a daily basis. The attitude, the standards that we expect of Brisbane Royal players. You've been at the pointy end of youth development, both from a school perspective and also from a clubland or, or from an academy perspective with Brisbane Raw Academy, there are a number of traps that young players can fall into that will take them away or distract them from football or from any sport. Can you talk about some of those traps? The key to being a good person is you need balance in your life. You need to have a healthy, balanced life. At the same time, you want to be serious about your football. But I think you, you need to be smart. You know, Hopefully we can educate our kids or our players um, and I'm talking from a coach's perspective now, to, to make the right decisions, to do the right things. There are lots of challenges out there from from friends that may lead them astray or, or things like that, but then there's also social media that can get people into trouble. You know, there's going to be a lot of outside distractions. We can only control what happens in our environment with our players, but I guess a lot of, a lot of responsibility is placed on, on, on the parent in regards to what, they shape or how they shape their child away from, from the, the, the training session or the training field. But it's, it's a difficult one to pinpoint about the traps as such because that there are many ways a player could be trapped or, or caught up. But, but we can certainly do our best to educate our players in our environment about what's right and what's wrong and what's expected. You use SmarterBase as a form of technology to ensure that they've got that balance right. Can you talk about that? Yeah, uh, SmarterBase is an athlete management system which can sort of really pinpoint and focus in on, on player loading, player wellness and well-being. And it could tell us things from, from anything, on how much sleep an athlete's getting and or how tired they're feeling or, or how sore they are in a session to things that we probably wouldn't really know to ask if uh, we were just looking at them face-to-face -face on, a, on a training session or a daily basis. Smarterbase can, can open up so many more possibilities for us to, to not only find out if our one if our player is happy and well and healthy but but also prevent injuries as well because red flags can come up and pop up in, in the, the management system to let us know if a player's done a little bit too much work or what they're doing away from football have they been doing too much in school level and, and again that that's where we work well with gps schools because we we share information around smarter base and they let us know what their players are doing as well what advice would you give to parents as to what is good behavior and what is bad behavior 
for the best interest of their child? Well, I think parents, they play such a huge role in the life of our athletes. So we respect that. And, and as a club, we certainly know that they are paramount to to the success of the child in terms of getting them to training, getting them to games. But ultimately, we just want them to be the parent. We don't want them to be the coaches. We don't want them to be, we don't want our kids to be looking over to mum and dad on the sideline or whoever it might be. And they're getting information there. We just want them to be a parent. Trust what we're doing. When they drop their kid off to training or to a game, trust what the coaches are doing. Whether they agree or disagree, trust that they're giving them a message to try and make them better. You know, our coaches come here with the sole intent to make these kids better. If they can trust that, that they're well along the way to doing their jobs in terms of what we expect from them as parents. We don't want them getting involved in the sideline. We don't want them making comments that could be contradicting what the coaches say or even anything derogatory, which could make them feel bad about themselves while they're playing the game. We just want them to be the loving parents that they are, dropping their kids off and just support them in in the best way they can. What is your plan for 2020, both within the academy and also outreach into the footballing community. The job's not done. It's only just begun for me. So we've implemented a lot, lot of things right now. Like I said, we've made changes to where we are. Uh, we've only just touched on the regional areas and building relationships with certain people, you know, in areas we can't get to or access so easily. That's going to continue to develop and build. We'll have strategies in place about getting more talent ID with regional kids coming to us next year. With our academy, we'll look to grow it and build it. We've got new new equipment, new resources coming. Smiler Base is on board, like I said, but then we'll we'll look to add to things that we've got in our program and just continue the push and for the sole reason that we want to make our kids the best they can be. So you also have the skills acquisition phase program out in the community and also some other academy programs to help assist those kids that may be not in at the level yet, but trying to push them up to the level to be in the academy? Yeah, we've got a lot going on in terms of programs. Just to push the push our Brisbane Raw name out there and let people know that we're back and we, we do care and we want to try and be more across the talent ID space, which we probably haven't done that well in the past. And we want to make sure we're providing for everyone in the sense that we can, if it could be someone that just wants to be upskilled with an extra session a week, we've got programs that can provide for that. We're across the talent ID in terms of the skills acquisition phase. That's boys and girls. We fully respect our women's program. We have a W League teams. We want to do a lot more in the women's space coming in 2020. It's an exciting time. There's lots to roll out and there's lots to to do. But the message would be that the job is nowhere near complete or done. We You'll see changes in 2020, but there'll be will continue to push and, and try and make us the best academy in, in Australia. In part one, I spoke to Scott Higgins, a former Queensland Raw goalkeeper and Warren's co-coaching partner. In this episode, I asked him what he believed the future holds for Warren. This is what he had to say. 100% definitely coaching an A-League team at some stage in his career. I could actually see him involved in some of the younger Australian sides, whether that's the Joeys or the Oli Roos or something like that. If you look at the clubs he's coached and the players he's brought in and the players that he's worked with, he gets the best out of young guys and he really gives young players a chance. Sometimes these these days you don't see young players, especially in the A-League. I, I feel that I don't see it enough. You know, There's some really, really good young talent playing in the NPL leagues around the country and, and I just think given time, in a professional setup, they, they would only thrive and get better. I also asked the CEO of Brisbane Raw, David Pore, the same question. Well, if I had a crystal ball, I'd be making sure we're winning every uh, grand final and everything to do with the club. So I think Warren is in a, a very good position regardless to advance his career, whatever that may take him, if it's to be 
a coach or a bigger, broader administrator in the club, um, I wouldn't want to give speculation or false hope to any any person who's in the club around their potential because that could be limiting. Um, I think if if Warren wanted to be a uh, an A League coach or a W League coach um, of uh, of the Brisbane Roar, would he have the qualifications? I think he's pretty close to it. Um, does he have now the breadth of experience? I think he's in a good position. Um, given that he's within the professional environment now in the system. So he gets to see what it is. And it's importantly the team that he's mustered around him. So um, I can't categorically say, yes, he's going to be anything. Uh, but what I can say is we've got the best environment to um, certainly give an aspirant of those particular roles in the future, every opportunity um, to be successful. And, uh, and that's what we do really well at our club. What would the... Warren Moon of today, what advice would he give the Warren of 19 years of age? Work harder, pay attention to uh, the details around the, the high performance side of things. Like I said, I would have done more in my prehab, my rehab, sorry. I would have given him advice. You've got to do it now. Do more of it. It's not enough what I did do. I did the bare minimum to get my body right, thinking it was okay. As a player, I did okay. I th- Technically, I wasn't a bad little player. But if I'd have looked after and pushed myself more in terms of my body and, and getting it to a level where it could have allowed my skills to, to be showcased a lot better than what they were, I think I think I might have done all right. Warren Moon, thank you. Thanks very much. We have reached the end of the Gospel According to Warren Moon. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed speaking to Warren. Don't forget to follow Intense Board on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Visit our website at intentsport.com or listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or Stitcher. If you'd like to nominate a junior athlete to be showcased in one of our future champion episodes, simply go to our website and complete the nomination form. Thank you.